0: Well, good morning, everyone. If you would turn open to 1 Kings chapter 19, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning uh, in meeting the God who is near. This series for me, I don't know, we've heard back from many of you. This series for me has been a personal highlight. I have enjoyed. seeing and observing and participating in the exaltation of God and us being able to come and just say, I'm amazed. This is God. Who is this God that has loved us this way and restored us to Himself and He reigns over everything, a faithful God who is always with us, the God who is near and starting this morning, I'd like to take you on a journey to outer space. Can we do that for you space cadets? In 1774, the Whirlpool Galaxy was discovered. The Whirlpool Galaxy is 23 million light years away. Now, 23 million would be a, a lot of miles. But it's 23 million light years. You know, light travels 186,000 miles per second. Light in a second travels around the earth seven times. Light traveling at 186,000 miles per second for 23 million years. That's how far away that is. And it's been there, hanging out there, for God to enjoy. And then lowly Charles Messier in 1774 looks through a, a telescope and says, Whoa, that's pretty cool. Well, in 1990, the Hubble telescope was launched into space with the sole priority of getting beyond the sta- just the, the static and the interference of the Earth's atmosphere to be able to see the universe that we live in in a, a, a clearer way. It, getting beyond that, focused in on the Whirlpool Galaxy. We've been knowing it's there for a while. People have been drawing pictures of it and stuff. It's actually this, that uh, thing over there on the right at the tail, that's actually a few more million light years away. So it's actually not hanging on the Whirlpool Galaxy. But interestingly, this structure from Earth looks like this. It said uh, it, actually in a dark sky. You can probably see this in our sky with binoculars. It's pretty cool being that far away. But this being up there for thousands of years, since the beginning of the universe, God enjoying it, watching it. And in 1992, the Hubble telescope focused in, outside of the static and interference of the Earth's atmosphere, focuses in. It wants to see what's in the middle of that. And aren't you always curious to know what's in the middle? Well, they want to know what's in the middle of this structure that's been there for thousands, scientists would say millions of years. Thousands of years just hanging out there. You know what's in the middle of this? you know what? If the cross is dear to us, it does something to us. To see something that is 23 million light years away, that in 1992 was finally, oh, look at that. And scientists try to describe it as it's actually two dust rings. It's a black hole, but two dust rings with cones in there. And they're actually perpendicular to one another and to the whole Whirlpool Galaxy. That's why it's an X structure. But when the cross is dear to us and we know that we have a God who reigns, we say, wow. And there's something intricate about that. The fact that when we look at that and consider how very far away it is, it, it communicates something deep inside of us. Because here's the reality. All of us, all of us have static and interference in our lives that we need to kind of get beyond in order to experience a uniqueness about God's nearness, the God who is transcended over all the universe. He holds the universe. I think, I forgot to look this up. I think uh, scientists guess that the expanse of the known universe is something around 90 billion light years. So light, from one end that we know, traveling at 186,000 miles per second for 90 billion years, then you'll possibly get to the edge of what we think is the edge of the universe. And God says, I got that right here. He is the transcendent one, but yet... What we're going to explore this morning is that there is a, 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 a particular nearness about God that in that transcendence, He pierces through who we are, to the core of who we are. We heard that in Tammy's testimony, to so the core of who we are to where we know, I've just experienced God inside of me, the experience of His presence inside of me. Asaph, in, uh, he wrote a psalm, Psalm 73, pretty popular psalm, where he goes through this uh, aspect of looking at the world. It's the static and interference of the world around him. He's looking at everybody around him and saying, why do they have an easy life, and why are they successful, and they don't love God? Here, I'm over here trying to love God. Things are hard for me. They don't come easy, and I'm scraping along. But yet, I look at the world, and they've got everything happening for them, and they hate God. What's going on? And he comes to verse 16, and he actually says, this seemed to be, when he tried to figure out and ask the question, why, why is this occurring? He said, this seemed to me to be a wearisome task. And you know, when the static and interference of our lives creeps in, it causes weariness to where we're saying, what, what, looking around, trying to figure out what's going on, And, and then the very next verse, he says, until... I went into the sanctuary of my God, so when he got back into God's presence, at the end of the psalm, he says, "Gods, it's, it's really good for me to be near God." And the NAS, the New American Standard, actually translates that verse and says, "The nearness of God is my good." So it's, it's both. It's good for us to be near God, but we can't be a new God unless He's near us." So this morning we're going to uh, we're going to look at... Particularly Elijah's experience, the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19 about his experience with the nearness of God. But along the way, as we're going through that, we're just going to put, put ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, we're going to examine our lives first. Examine our own lives. Examine what's going on. Examine where there's weariness taking place in our own lives. And, and ask the Lord, God, I, I need a remedy for this. I need, I need your nearness right now. Let's meet the prophet Elijah. In James chapter 7, we have uh, James letting us know something about Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Other uh, translations of Scripture say he had passions just like us. With a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and God sent rain. It lets us know who who is this one who has this fervent prayer life. Well, Elijah, he was appointed by God to be a prophet to the nation of Israel when King Ahab um, was king over Israel. This is approximately about 850 B.C., 850 years before Christ. And he's appointed to challenge Baalism. And Baalism was uh, the effect of syncretism, the attempt at syncretism meaning in Israel, meaning we want to love God and something else at the same time. And Baal was a fertility god. And so they wanted to, Baal's the one that sent the rains. And when it was a dry season, it's because Baal was being defeated by the death god, and so we need to offer tribute to Baal in order to send the rains again. Well, they needed to know, no, 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 it's Yahweh that sends the rains, and he withholds the rains. He's the one that's in control of it all. So he's coming, he's on the scene, and he wants everybody, he's appointed by God to let a rebellious nation know it's time to worship God again. It's a pretty big task. So he prays that it won't rain. He tells Ahab, it's not going to rain. Yeah, right. Well, it didn't rain. God sent him out by a brook, and he was fed by ravens. So he's drinking water out of the brook. Ravens are bringing him his hamburgers every morning and night. And so then When the brook finally dries up, then he goes and God shows him, brings him to this widow and her son, and he says, Hey, bake me some cakes. So, okay. Why? It's all I have left. Then we're dead. We eat this, we're dead. No, no, no. You you take this step of faith and you'll be well supplied for. And so for probably a year and a half-ish, the widow, well supplied for him, the son dies, and he says, whoa, God, can't bring calamity like this. Leans on the sun, raises the son back to, back to life. He's seen some pretty cool stuff. And, that's, and then we get to chapter 18 of 1 Kings. That's all 17. Chapter 18, we get to 1 Kings. He says, okay, uh, let Ahab know I'm coming. Of course, hey, Ahab wants to kill him because, hey, man, you said it wouldn't rain, and now it's not raining. And everybody's looking at me, and, and Baal's not answering. So, the little, so let's, let's do a little uh, party, why don't we? Let's get assemble everybody. Get all your prophets of Baal. We're going to go to Mount Carmel. And I'm going to be on one side. Y'all are going to be on the other. And I want y'all to erect an altar. I'm going to erect an altar. He actually repaired an altar that had already been there. An altar to the Lord that Ahab came in and, and destroyed. So the prophets of Baal erect their own altar. They put their sacrifice. And Elijah says, whoever's God answers by fire, he's the God. So it's, it's a wonderful story. He's there, prophets of Baal, they're dancing around for three, four hours. They're cutting themselves, as was their ritual. They're doing all their chants, and Elijah is just completely sarcastic with them. Maybe you need to be a little louder. Maybe he's on a vacation. Maybe he's on the potty. He can't hear you. So Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. You know what? It's not just enough that there's a sacrifice here. Uh, let's wet it. Let's wet it three times. Let's wet it so much so there's a moat around it. And he goes and he prays. Here's a man who knows how to pray. He prays. God answers by fire. He, not just the water, which is not flammable, is gone and lifted up into the flames, but also the stones themselves. The fire was so intense, a fire from God, it incinerated the stones right before him. This guy's seen some stuff. He's been used in some really, really cool ways. Then he goes and he prays again and he sends his servant to the edge of the cliff. Go look, there's rain. No, no rain. He prays seven times, the seventh time. I see a cloud the size of a man's fist coming up from the horizon. He tells Ahab, it's going to rain. Just get prepared. Go back to Jezreel because it's going to rain. And it rained. God is the one. And here, and then he goes and kills the 400 prophets of Baal. And, but the ones who were there, the Israelites who were there, they're bowing themselves. No, God is the rightful God. He is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. He's worthy of all of our worship and all we are. Revival's happening. It's all cool. And then we come to this chapter, chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And Elijah's brought to the brink of his own weariness, and God's going to respond in a very unique way to him, to sustain him. So again, I'm going to go through verses 1 through 10, and then do the rest of the chapter. or Well, to verse 18 after that. Holy Spirit, we invite your illumination as we, as we consider this living word. Jesus, thank you that we are interacting with you right now. And Holy Spirit, have it make sense to us. Turn on the lights. We want to be changed. We want to see you as greater than ever. Thank you. Amen. Ahab told Jezebel, all Jezebel, Ahab's wife, all that Elijah had done and and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She's saying, I'm going to kill you. Give me 24 hours, I'm going to kill you. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Here we have... We have something happening, there's, there's a change in Elijah here, he's, he prays, things happen, there's awesome stuff taking place, and this Jezebel is gonna, queen of Israel, she's going to threaten his life, and he's gonna turn afraid and then say, uh, I'm out of here. So we have to ask the question, what, what's going on here, how is this occurring, how, why, Elijah, you just saw all that, you experienced it yourself, what's the change? I think we can identify with maybe what the change was. I think what what, most commentators would say that Elijah is, he's faced with an unchanging situation. Because when he says, look, I'm no better than my fathers, you know what, he's actually, he's letting God know. He's telling God, look, you appointed me as a prophet of Baal. You appointed me to do away, a prophet of God, for, to destroy Baal, that. we got to get that straight. (laughs) You appointed me to get rid of this. Jezebel's still up to her antics. It's not going to happen. I'm no better than my father's. My father's tried to do it. Israel's a lost cause. Nothing's going to take care. Nothing's going to happen anymore. So he's faced with a situation that seems to be unchanging. All this stuff happened, and look, there was no rain, and then you sent rain, God, and then the whole Mount Carmel thing, and, and, and she's still resisting you, the queen of Baal. She's the one who brought it all in, basically. And it's, it's still going to be here, God. It's still going to be here. So you did a bunch of good things, but it's still going to be here because Jezebel, look, she's up to her same stuff again and again. And when Elijah's met with this resistance, he's, after God's done all the impossible, sees the situation as possibly never going to change, becomes weary. And, and Martin Lowe Jones says that we have... Uh, we have in our Christian lives, as we face difficulty, and we do face difficulty, don't we? Jesus didn't say, uh, come and everything's going to be easy. No, he said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. There's an aspect to our lives and the, and, and the demonstration of sacrifice, the demonstration of all that Christ is, it's It's tough. And we are in a world where the resistance is full force all the time. And here, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, We must not be, it's okay to be tired in the work as long as we're not tired of the work. Very keen distinction we need to, we need to take note of to, because we too will grow tired and weary in the work. We love God. God, I love you. I want to do all that you're calling me to do. I want to obey you. I want to love you with everything that I am. And resistance comes and there is, there's a reality of weariness that happens in that moment. But there's a, there's a different story when, God, I said I would do this for you and it's just hard and um, forget it. Tired of the work, the task, different being, than being tired in it. Here, Elijah, tired in the task. And we too, we have, we have these perceived unchanging situations. To survey your life for a moment, where is there relational strife that you would look at and say, this has not changed for 25 years. My wife, my husband, same way. We've been to biblical counseling. We've even been to the secular counseling. We've been to everybody. We've talked to so many people Still in the same place. Family, children, never able to get the hearts of the child turned to the father, and it becomes weary over and over and over again. Outside extended family strife, to where there's somebody in your family that it's just, it's just not going well. Accusations are going back and forth. What about in the area of personal weakness in our lives? We can look at our weaknesses and say, that it's just the same. It's just I've always been that way, and um, and maybe it never will change. Maybe a job-related stress or resistance coming in the workplace, a resistance from oh, I, I stood up for the Lord, and now I'm hearing about it. Or I didn't cheat like my boss wanted me to cheat on that paperwork, and now I'm hearing about it. Weariness in the task. How about a, a physical suffering? Physical suffering plays its toll in, you think, I mean, there's a point uh, where you, you're scared that you're not going to die. You're in so much pain and so much grief physically. Great, I'm going to still be on the earth and have to deal with this. I really would just like to go to heaven. That would be great right now, but I can't. Unchanging situations. or, or How about uh, just sinful habits and patterns in our, in our lives that have been there for years and years and years? The same triggers... The same trigger to anger, the same trigger to lust, the same triggers are still there. And we still find ourselves with the same pattern, the same habits. Now, we must, we must prepare ourselves that resistance will happen. It'll come. And, and it'll come, it'll come probably most forcefully after God has done something really cool in our lives. We're sitting down with the Lord, and we just got some insight on in the Word, and we are pumped, and we're faith for everything, and we're praying for everybody to get saved, and we're expecting to walk out. People are, I got saved. I don't know what happened. I just got saved. Yes, because I met with God and I prayed, and it happened. And then we just we're here. We're, our faith, our faith is built up here in the preached Word, and we're together with people, and we're loving life. Listen, in the most familiar circumstances. That's where resistance will come. When we meet those unchanging situations, there's our resistance. But what's happening there? Is God in control or are we in that moment? And when we're in control, you know what the unchanging situation leads to in us? A loss of perspective. We find that in Elijah here. He's lost his perspective. He ain't thinking right. Commentator in the ESV Study Bible, uh, 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 I think it's in this beginning verse, is verse four, three or four. His little note says, with Jezebel's resistance, Elijah forgets to think theologically. I said, that is well said. And how often we forget to think theologically? So here, Elijah—he—he's not thinking theologically. He's actually got a greater and a greater uh, view of his own contributions of sacrifice in this deal than all that God's—and he's not all that God's done. And he's not letting God's work and God's power and God's word—he's not letting that have the proper weight in his thinking. His thinking is just kind of—it's gone. He's forgotten the power of God. That's happened—just happened to him in the previous three three and a half years. He forgets the answered prayer. He forgets those who love God too. He meets a prophet on the way when he's coming to Ahab and telling everybody to meet at Mount Carmel. He meets a prophet, Obadiah. Obadiah says, the Bible says he feared God. He actually feared God so much that he took 100 prophets and he put 50 of them in one cave and 50 of them in the other cave and for an entire year he fed them so Jezebel wouldn't kill him. And Elijah comes across that he forgets, he forgets those that have done, that. he's forgetting those that were worshiping Baal and they repented and then they're saying, no, God is the real God. He's, he's not, he's forgetting these things, not that having, letting the power of God have its proper weight. And here the task begins to loom larger and larger and larger and his strength gives way. It's consuming him and controlling him now. Our friend Kurt Allen says, well, we're not thinking theologically, we're thinking meologically. <laughs> we do that. When we're not thinking about God, it's all about us, and we are studying ourselves, and we know exactly what we need in that moment, and we, are, we know the prescription that we need, and it, God needs to do this, or it's not going to take place. And that, that this usually has all of me involved with it. See, when he, we find this in verse 10, he actually, I think, looking at this and just observing, he's saying, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. What he's saying is, God, I'm the only one that loves you. And if she kills me, the work, your work on this earth is done. I say, well, we know God's bigger than that. But let's think about how many times we really do live that way. God, I'm the only one that's loving you in this situation. Relational strife, marital difficulty, and conflict with kids, job-related, all those unchanging situations. When we lose perspective, we begin to think, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that loves God. And there's, there's nothing's gonna happen. If I'm, not, if I'm not loving God, well, he's, he's becoming weary. And we too, when we lose perspective due to the unchanging situation, the task ahead of us to live a godly life of kingdom advancement and loving our enemies and doing good to those who hate us and all those imperatives that we find just with Jesus' own words, we're finding them, oh, it's just too difficult. The task is too large and it looms larger and larger and larger and we just kind of Give in, give way, we start saying stuff like the situation will never change. he or she will never, never change, never used never in a sentence, really <laughs> Forgetting the grace of God in our lives when we 've lost perspective, we forget about how the grace has been grace of God has been so abundant, and we also this is interesting we we all do this we uh, in forgetting about the grace of God, we're forgetting about future grace that will come. How God, in particular situations, will put a person in our path or something will happen. and, and Well, somebody will be able to come alongside of us that maybe has been in a similar situation. In that moment, if we're, if we're thinking meologically and we've lost our perspective, we will begin to disqualify those that come and try to help us. Even to the point of disqualifying God's word. In that moment, the task, oh, it's just too big, I, I'm not... But I'm not thinking right. I tell people, you don't understand, you don't understand, you don't understand, you don't understand, you don't understand. Well, maybe they do understand. But there's an arrogance that rises up when we think that we become, we're part of the deal. So when we get too enamored with our own sacrifice and our own contributions. Way too enamored with it. Well, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and, and they haven't done anything. They never do anything no it's not true you think meologically enough guess what you're gonna think you are jesus in the situation <laughs> that you have done everything and you are you are dying and when, when we think that our sin is too big or our sins are too many and it robs us of perspective it robs us of thinking theologically Unchanging situation leads to a loss of perspective. The loss of perspective leads to weariness. As Elijah's perspective is shifting off of God onto himself, what does he do? He isolates himself. He leaves. He leaves not just, he's leaving Jezreel where they were, and then he goes to Beersheba, and then he leaves his servant there, and he himself, verse 4, he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came, out, sat, came and sat under a broom tree. The broom trees are just big, about five to ten foot trees that provide shade in the desert, and that's what he's hanging out under. He not only isolates himself, but he he comes to the Lord at the end of verse four, about midsection, and he says, It is enough. The task is huge. People will never love God like they're supposed to love God. And, and my job is to try to get them to love God like, like he wants them to love him. And it's never going to happen. Lose perspective. No, I'm left. Just me. And he goes before the Lord and he says, God, enough. Enough. You know, it's one thing to tell somebody else enough. This dude's telling God enough. <laughs> Thankfully, all that we learned about God, he doesn't respond like we would respond to that. Oh, you want enough? Oh, I'll give you enough. That's how we respond. (laughs) But haven't we been in those moments in our own lives where we just say, enough, enough. We're so, we're weary of the battle. And and when our situations nag at us long enough, we're going to become weary and we're weary of the battle. We're weary of the mental battle of trying to keep our minds focused upon God and all that he is. And it results in weariness and it's going to happen. It will happen in our spiritual journeys. We have to evaluate our response to when the weariness comes. See, here, Elijah is isolating himself. He's running away. And in a a way, he is running to God, but kind of denying everything around him because he thinks like he's, he's just, he's it. He's the only one left. So he's isolating himself and he's just telling God enough. He's giving in, and despair is taking over. We too are tempted to isolate ourselves. You know, when something bad is happening, you just retreat. Retreat into yourself. Retreat from people. Retreat from prayer. Retreat from fellowship. Just retreat. Retreat from the word of God. I just, enough. It's not working. I've prayed. No, Jeff, you don't understand. I've prayed. Have you? When did God say stop? But we, we give in. And we resign ourselves to the situation. Proverbs 18.1 says, uh, the, He who isolates himself seeks his own desire. And he runs away from all sound judgment. Sound counsel. When we isolate ourselves and we retreat from everything around us because we really, we're just into ourselves and it's the meology that's raining and we don't want to hear it from anybody else. We don't want to hear from God. We stop praying. We stop everything. We're seeking our own desire in that moment. And we too are tempted just to give in, give up, enough, God. And we despair and we lose hope. And after we despair and lose hope, we become bitter and our hearts get hard. And then our approach to that situation is never the same because now we're just looking through our own understanding and our own feelings and our own fears, our own anxieties, and we can't see it the same way anymore. And then, after this bitterness and hardness of heart sets in, we come to the point of feeling, feeling alone and really forsaken by God. I think Elijah felt that. I think Elijah felt, God, I'm alone, even with you. Because there, he travels. This, it's not it's a far away from Jezreel to Beersheba. And then he goes out into the desert, some 120 miles. No cars, not even a horse and buggy. He ain't going very fast. He's walking it. And all along the way... Maybe he's still contemplating who God is, and, and maybe God is just quiet. And he, he, can't, he doesn't know what to do with that, and, and he's, he gets to that point of just saying, okay, enough, God, even you're silent, and I can't hear you, I don't have your word, I don't. I'm alone, God, have you forsaken me? Have you left me out here by myself to die? Several years ago, I uh, went through a, series, a season in my own life. Of a deep despair. As a result of my own sinfulness. And. The tears are because of how great God is. Through all of that. Um, But I remember that my sins were. Screaming louder and louder and louder. Just condemnation after condemnation after condemnation upon me. Pouring out. It's Psalm 38 that Keith read a couple weeks ago. That I, I felt that. God, your arrows have sunk deep into me. My wounds stink and fester, and I'm alone. People, they turn their backs from me, and, and I was beginning to giving into the aloneness. I was beginning to give into it to where I was losing perspective. Losing the perspective of no, God and the cross needs to be right in view here. It wasn't. And so my despair kept growing and growing. And I, would, I was reading the word and I was praying. But I wasn't hearing anything. I wasn't hearing anything. And, and it's, it was a very weird uh, season. I almost gave into it, thankfully. Lord, I remember thinking, I you was know, sitting on the Zephyr Field parking lot early one morning. Went there just to pray, sitting in my car. And I remember thinking, and it was an overcast day. I can tell you the direction I was facing. It was an overcast day, and that was, that was kind of the shadow on my life. That was the day of my life. That season was just overcast, always. And I remember thinking, Lord, in my mind, I am, I am so giving in to despair that if I go one more step, I feel like I'll be irrecoverable. And thankfully, the Lord in that moment provided a remedy to my weariness. I was weary. I was weary for the effect on my family, for the effect on the church. I was weary. I didn't know what to do. God, where are you? You're quiet. But he provided a remedy. Because weariness needs a remedy. Look at verses 11 Through 19. And God said to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. He was. A chapter ago, he was certainly in the fire, wasn't he? Look next. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous For the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of him... There, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Here, God, God strengthens Elijah, angel, brings him some food. Here's your dinner, eat up. No, you need to eat again because the journey's too great. And this, he travels now from where he was in the wilderness down to Mount Horeb, around 200 miles. And he just, over those two meals, God was sustaining him because God was going to show him something else. No, Elijah, I need to show something of myself. So he goes down, and Mount Horeb in scripture is the the same mountain as Mount Sinai. And we've got to think that in his mind, Elijah immediately went to Moses' experience. He just told me, yeah, he's walking, 40 days, 40 nights, all of a sudden he's there at Mount Horeb, and God says, this is where I want you to be. Immediately at that moment, he has to recognize, it's a pretty important mountain. Um, some cool things have happened here. We, we have, for us, we have it recorded in, in Exodus 33 and 34, where Moses, really coming upon his own weariness in the task of leading the people of Israel, cries out to the Lord and says, God, if you don't go before us, we're... We're not going up for here. He intervenes and steps, he steps in between God and the people. God even telling Moses, look, I'm going to annihilate them and I'll make you a nation because you love me. He was, God seemed to be tired of the task. But no, only, only to allow Moses to be able to understand the depth of his heart and his love for these people. Where Moses then stands there and says, no, but what will the Egyptians say? What will the rest of the world say? You're the, we've told everybody you saved us because you love us. He says, no, I, I'm going to go before you. And then Moses, in that, he needed something deeper. He needed something sustaining. So he says, God, if, if I please, if you would, may I see your glory. Show me your glory. And we have that where he takes him. He's out on Mount Sinai, hides him in the cleft of a rock, and the Lord passes by. And, and he told him, you can't see everything that I, that I am because you won't live you'll be incinerated cuz man can't see me. He can't be front to front with my face, my presence and live. Just can't happen. So he goes and he says, "I'm going to show you my backside." That's what I'm gonna, but the backside is enough to make Moses' face shine. That's how much he saw of God. That's how much he was affected and he sees the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, a God merciful and filled, abounding in steadfast love but who will not let the guilty go unpunished. He sees something of God that later on, Numbers 14 records, he uses that right back with God. God, you've declared yourself to be this. Be it. Please be it. Based on the experience of the presence of God, the nearness of God that Moses even felt. And now Elijah's got to have that in his memory. He's got to have that in his mind right now and thinking, what is going on here? So he steps back into a cave and all the things that come, the winds. Can you imagine a wind that would tear a rock off a mountain? It's pretty strong. And then an earthquake and then a fire. All those elements have already been on my, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb before. And he's there and he's waiting. And the sound of a low whisper he puts his cloak around his face. I think he put his cloak all the way over his face because he knew if I see God, I'm dead. So he said, no, I need to cover everything. It wasn't like a little seeing out the, the top. It was covered. Wrapped his face in his cloak. What's, what's he? And then God asks him again, what are you doing here? I think he gives the same answer, but I think he gives it differently. Because I, I, think, I think God doesn't mind our questions of why. I think he minds how we ask the question. Is it from the motivation of pride Or the motivation of just being undone. God, I'm weary. I need you. Need everything you you are to me. And here, God speaks in a deeper way in this low whisper to Elijah. He communicates his nearness to Elijah. In his kindness, he reminds Elijah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I've done, I am the strong wind and the earthquake, and the fire, as you've experienced, Elijah, as you know has taken place on this mountain when I declared myself to my people and I gave them the Ten Commandments, and I declared myself to Moses, y- I'm with you. I am those things, but I'm with you in a deeper way. In the midst of Elijah's weariness, the remedy was to move deeper into the experience of God's nearness, You know, there's a a New Testament example of this as well, where in Mark 4 we find uh, Jesus uh, tired. He was a man, just like us. He's a man. He's God. He got tired. So he says, look, I'm going to take a little nap right here on this sack in the boat. Well, the storm comes. It's raging, going back and forth. The disciples are freaking out. And finally they say, Jesus, don't you care? We're getting ready to die. Jesus gets up. In the midst of the storm, don't you still, have, you still lack faith? In the midst of the storm, do you still lack faith? I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm right here. Tells everything to calm down, be quiet, and then they're really terrified. <laughs> um, can you go back to sleep so we don't have to look at you? Because I'm scared. But think about it. Why was Jesus sleeping? Because he was convinced of the Father's nearness. I knew God's with me. My Father is with me. You know, there's a, a, uh, I remembered a story. Time When I was back at LSU in college, I was part of FCA Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And the coach who led the huddle, uh, which they're called, he was, he was a football coach, and he coached the secondary, coached the defensive backs. Uh, and this was Curly Holman's last year. A Poor Curly Holman should have never had the job. Uh, and they just, and so they're trying to find a new coach. To coach the team, that's when they finally ended up getting Jerry DiNardo to coach the team. Well, I remember Coach, I think, I think if I'm correct, his name is Coach Baldwin. When he was there, and I, I'll never forget this now, because it's just so cool. He said, you know, because people were asking him, his own, te- his own uh, the guys on the team were asking, Coach, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Coach Hallman's not here. What are you going to do? And he said, you know what? I don't know. I'm praying. I'm seeking the Lord. I just don't know. He said, but I can't assure you of one thing. He said, whoa, 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 what's that? He said, I'm going to be able to sleep. I said, what are you talking about? He said, because I know God's got everything under control. I know he's with me, so I'm going to be able to sleep at night. It's, it's going to be fine. He's going to show me. He's got a job for me. He's going to show me where that job is. Thankfully, he was able to stay on and still pour into our lives, even with the new coaching staff. Are you weary, tired, tempted to give up, give in, feeling forsaken? We, we, this morning, need to hear. We need to, to know that the remedy for our weariness is to have a deeper experience of the nearness of God. God, in His low whisper, communicating His nearness constantly to us. If you would quickly turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know what he's asking? You know, his, here's his prayer for the strength of the Ephesian believers is this, that the Holy Spirit in you would strengthen you to be able to understand his love for you. When we sense his nearness, it's because the cross is dear to us. When we see the core of the Whirlpool Galaxy, the cross being dear to us, it's God, the cosmic one, the transcendent one, communicating something fiercely into us that is so sweetly soft. Because all of us have experienced it. We've experienced being just undone by who God is and his love for us. And here, Paul is saying, you need more of that. You need to know the nearness of God. As you progress in your journey, before you start putting on, putting off, and putting on everything that comes in the next chapters, before you start doing that, here's my prayer. He's with you. Know it. And know it over and over and over again. This God who, is, who holds the whole universe together, he's the one that sent his son, Emmanuel, God with us. And what? With the low whisper of him being born in a stable. Nobody around and him being rejected by most people growing up. Feeling alone, knowing what it was be it was to be alone. And then he's on the cross, and he is forsaken by his father on the cross. Till the father said, Enough. Why? Why? And so each one of us could experience Jesus saying, Listen, I'm with you always even to the end of the age i'm with you never will we forsake you never will god forsake you why because he's already done it to his son there's no need to forsake those that he's redeemed and he 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 said enough on his son jesus saying he felt it that's it's enough it's finished it's done Now we can know, we can be sustained, that no matter what the situation, the the perceived unchanging situation of our lives, no matter what it is, we can hear the low whisper of God saying, I'm with you, I love you, I'm with you. For me, that remedy for my own weariness came in this simple fact. I just knew, beyond all my feelings told me, I knew that God loved me. And I heard it over and over and over again. It was the only thing I heard for eight months in prayer. And you know what? I got to a point that's all I wanted to hear. I just want to hear it over and over. God, I want to hear it remind me because my, I'm prone to wander in my mind for sure. I feel it. God, remind me again and again. Though... He may be perceived to be silent. His low whisper of the cross is constant, constant, constant. The effect on Elijah was that it humbled him. His motivation is reoriented. He wraps his faith, face in his cloth, and he couldn't. He couldn't see God in that moment. He knew, God, yes, yes, you, you are God. I'm not. You are God. And I want to bow before you. And his perspective is adjusted back to a kingdom mindset, a kingdom advancement mindset where God's saying, look, I'm still doing this, Elijah. It's not just up to you. I've got a bunch. As a matter of fact, i have got 7,000 that they've never even kissed Baal. And what they would do, the the idol themselves, they would be uh, lifted up and people would come and kiss the feet of the idol. So he's being very literal in that moment. 7,000 never kissed. Not the ones, not just the ones that repented on Mount Carmel. I've got 7,000 others. They, they love me. And they know too. I'm with them. Elijah, I'm with you. I'm with you for kingdom advancement. See, because there's more work to be done, Elijah. You need to be anointing some more people. And you know what, Elijah? There's more prayers that I want to answer. So I want you to get back to that fervency in your prayer. See, what, what we have to understand is that God is the one protecting his work. He's protecting his work in our lives, and he's protecting our work through our, his work through our lives. And a lot of times we lose sight of that, but we have to be reminded by, by Philippians 2.13 that it's God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's the one at work in us. It's freeing. It's not up to me. So what should the effect of the experience of his nearness be on us? I, I would give you that it would be his sweet fervency there will be a sweet fervency sweetness coming from the experience of the nearness of god a few weeks ago i read through the life and diary of david brainerd if you have never done that i would suggest you do it he doesn't have a, and he doesn't have all these really amazing stories of saving people out of this and being saved out of that here's a guy who got kicked out of yale in his third year at yale because he said something disrespectful about a teacher not to a teacher but just about a teacher they accused him of something else. He went to a revival meeting that he wasn't supposed to go to. This is the uh, early to mid 1700s. The Great Awakening was taking place, and, and Yale was not keen on that. They didn't want their students going to that. He went, and so the three strikes against him, they kicked him out of Yale. Not only that, it's a guy from he, whom he said himself suffered from melancholy from his youth, he was prone to depression. So he walks around. He wants to be a pastor. He gets kicked out of Yale. You went to be a pa- when you wanted to be a pastor, you had to graduate from either Harvard, Yale, Brown. That's, that, those are the seminaries. That's where you get, the churches got their pastors from. So now he's kicked out. What is he going to do? He's prone to depression. He's been kicked out of Yale. So now his, his dreams are kind of shattered. And then also, oh, he's miserable in health. There's stories of him not being able to stand up to preach. He had to sit down to be able to preach. On particular days, he would record that nothing but blood came from him the entire day. Ended up dying at 29 years old of tuberculosis, what they called consumption. But you read this man's story, and all over the place, you know the word that's most prominent other than God? Sweet. He longed for the sweet presence of God. See, when his nearness becomes sweet, That sustains. And you know what? It sustains us in prayer. The fervent prayer. Because there needs to be a fervent prayer activity in our lives. I would commend highly the the book of the month, A Prayerful Life. Wonderful help. Wonderful resource in just helping us understand what prayer is. But here's what prayer is to me. I, I love prayer because every time, this is what I'm looking for. God, remind me that you're near. Remind me of your love. Remind me of your presence. Remind me that you are with me, no matter what is on the agenda for prayer. And there's also a fervency for ministry. Elijah, when he gets a proper perspective, God says, no, go. Go. Get back to kingdom advancement. So whatever that unchanging situation is, we need to be able to look at and then say, it's time for kingdom advancement. God, you're with me. Faith me. Sustain me comfort me, empower me, back to the work. Because now we're not weary in the work. Though weariness may happen again, we need to understand how to respond. No, God, Jesus, let me gaze upon the cross yet again. Let's stand up together. Father, we, in our desire this morning, we are desirous of feeling you near us. And your promise is that as we we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. But first, we must humble ourselves. Lord, we're sorry for forgetting to think theologically. We're sorry for looking at the situation as bigger than you and your power that has already been demonstrated in our lives. God, we are weary. Would you please remedy that with your nearness? Though we might not get a specific answer to the equation, to the situation, we are faith just to know you're with us. Jesus, your promise is that you are with us even to the end of the age. So may we hear your low whisper this morning in our soul.